You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We're going to read together verses 21 through 30, John 13. Beginning in verse 21, when Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, This is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some of them were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. Let's bow together. Our gracious God, we are thankful to to you for your word. It is a revelation to us of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is what we desire to see, the nature of Christ, the character of Christ. We pray that our vision and our hearts and our minds might be filled with him, so that having seen him, we might see you, our gracious Father, in Christ We thank you for the the truth of your word, and we thank you for the ministry of your spirit, which helps us to understand it. And we pray that you would send your spirit to be our guide today, uh, that your word might be our everlasting concern, and your glory might be preeminent among us. That is what we ask, and we pray that you would accomplish that amongst and in and through your people. In Christ's name, amen. Have you ever watched a television program or a movie or read a good book where You knew from the beginning of the story that something was amiss with one of the characters, but you weren't quite sure who it was. And then as the story progressed, the author would make you think it was one person, and then, no, that's not that. And you think it's somebody else, and then, no, no, maybe it's both of them. And then at the very end, when you find out that it was the butler that did it, and you think to yourself, how did I not see that? I mean, all of the clues and the indicators were right there with me all the way along. And and you start looking back over the story, and you realize, yeah, I should have seen it here, and I should have saw it there, but... The, but the, the, the cover-up was so masterful, the deception was so exquisite that you just couldn't figure out who it was until it was finally revealed at the end who it actually was. Have you ever seen a movie or been acquainted with a storyline? Probably all of us have, right? Do you know what makes Columbo so different? Not just the trench coat and the guy that you wouldn't trust to, to walk your dog, uh, that character, but I remember the very first time that I watched a, an episode of Columbo. Now, some of you like Columbo, some of you don't like Columbo, but everybody knows who Columbo is with Peter Falk. The very first time I watched an episode of Columbo, my mom told me at the beginning, she said, you're going to love these mysteries. Now, I'm not a big mystery fan. I've never read a mystery novel in my life. That's not an exaggeration. That's the absolute truth. I've never met a mystery novel in my life. I don't read novels as a general rule, specifically mystery novels. But she said, you're going to love Columbo because the very beginning of the show, they, they tell you who does the dirty deed, why they did it, where they did it, when they did it, how they did it, and how they covered it up. So how is that a mystery? If you know at the beginning of the story who it is that's the bad guy, what what else is there left to uncover for the next hour and a half? Well, of course, part of the endearment of Columbo is figuring out how it is that Columbo knows 
from the very first minute he lies eyes on the criminal who it is that did the dirty deed, right? That, that sense of discovery or that awe that we get when we watch a movie or read a book where the, 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 the perpetrator is hidden from us till the very end, that sense of awe is something of what the disciples must have felt when they were fi- when they finally came to the realization that it was Judas who was going to betray the Lord Jesus. None of them suspected that any of the twelve of them would be responsible for betraying the Lord. And these men had walked with each other and talked with each other and lived with each other and eaten with one another and visited. They knew each other well. When Jesus said, one of you will betray me, it had to have been stunning the thought that any one of them would do it. The Pharisees, they would expect an act of treachery from the Pharisees. Maybe some of the acquaintances of Jesus, those on the outer circle, they might even expect some who didn't know him all that well to betray him. But one of the twelve, and then Judas, the fact that Judas was there and that, listen, nobody suspected Judas. Not one single person suspected Judas. That is what makes the details of John chapter 13 and the details of this final night in the life of the Lord Jesus one of the most stunning aspects of that whole story is that nobody, not one person, thought it was Judas. So good was his cover-up that he kept it under wraps all the way until he walked into the garden with the Roman soldiers. With the, the, with the Jewish guard and the Jewish leadership. He was so masterful at his cover-up that nobody suspected it until he walked in the garden. And when they walked in the garden, they had to have been aghast. Now is the time? He is the one? How, how could this have happened? That sense of wonder and awe, because none of them expected that Judas was going to be the one to betray the Lord Jesus. Now, in John chapter 13, we've seen a lot of clues that Jesus has given as to who this betrayer is. Now, John writes his gospel like the writers write Columbo. And this analogy is going to limp from the very outset, but bear with me. John tells us right at the beginning, the very first mention of Judas, who it is that was going to betray the Lord Jesus. Back in chapter 6 of John, at the end of the Bread of Life discourse, Jesus said to them, "We have." Uh, Peter said, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, did I myself not choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. And then John says, now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Then back in chapter 12, only one chapter previous at the at the anointing of Jesus by uh, the woman, John says in verse 4, Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this not because he was a, uh, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Then in chapter 13, verse 2, we see that Satan had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. So back in John chapter 6, John says at that point, Judas was going to do this. And maybe by that point, Judas did himself not even foresee what he was going to do. He couldn't even anticipate what he was going to do. But John says Judas was going to do this. Then in chapter 12, Judas was already in the act of treachery. And he was in the process of betraying and intending to betray Jesus, even at that last week. And then in John chapter 13, as Jesus sat around the table with his disciples, one of them there was a devil, that's Judas. And Judas was that very night in the process of the act of betrayal. He had already met with the religious leaders. He had already sold Jesus. He had already agreed upon a price. He had set all of those events in motion. And he was there with the disciples, keeping the whole thing a cover-up right to the very last minute. But up until the point of verse 21, though Jesus has hinted, one of you is not clean, one of you does not belong to me, and one of you is going to lift up his heel against me. Those were all very vague allusions at best to the fact that something among them was amiss. 
But up until this point in John 13, the disciples still did not know either the act of betrayal itself, what it was that Judas was going to do, or that this attack was going to be a betrayal, and they didn't know who among them was going to do it. And so now we come to verse 21. We finished up verse 20 last week. Verse 21 through 30 is what we're looking at this morning. We just, we just read that text. We're not going to be able to take all of those, all ten of those verses for this reason. It's just too much. There's a lot there we need to consider. So we have to break it into two, two parts. And I'll give you a brief outline. I hate to do this to break a text like this because it's all one, it's really all one scene and it unfolds so perfectly, but it's difficult to find a place where where can we break this? Um, it's kind of like a bone. There's just no good place to break it, but we have to. So we're going to do that after the second point. Here's our outline for today and, and next week. We see here, first of all, in verse 21, the traitor or the betrayer is predicted. In verses 22 to 26, we see the betrayer is identified. And then in verses 27 to 30, the traitor is dismissed. He is predicted, he is identified, and then he is dismissed. And there's a lot of fascinating things here. So let's jump in with his prediction. Verse 21, when Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. Now, up to that point, the disciples had no idea what the lifting up the heel against me was. From hindsight, we, we can look at it and say, we understand all the way up into this point what Jesus has been describing, right? But they didn't have hindsight. Uh, to them, they understood simply that one of them was amiss. One of them wasn't clean. One of them was going to do something to Jesus. But they didn't know what it was until verse 21, where Jesus finally says, one of you will betray me. Now they understand at least the nature of the treachery, the nature of the tra- attack, that it is going to be a betrayal, but they still do not, at this point, understand or know who it is until Jesus identifies them later on. Now, there seems to be a break between verse 20 and 21, and I'll tell you why there seems to be a break there. Uh, when you get to the end of verse 20, John doesn't just continue with Jesus saying, now he was troubled in spirit. John sort of pauses the narrative and says, now when Jesus had said these things, beginning up in, earlier, ending in verse 20, when Jesus had said those things, then there seems to be a break, and Jesus becomes troubled in spirit. In that break, we suspect, we can't know for sure, but during that break in the text between verse 20 and 21, that seems to be where Jesus instituted communion and passed out the bread and gave the cup and said, this is my body, this is my blood, do this as often as you drink it. That seems to be the place where Jesus would have done that. Now, why would I say that? Because from Luke's Gospel, we can discern that Judas was present for the institution of the Lord's Supper. Because Luke says that Jesus, when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Now following verse 21, you have Jesus predicting the betrayal, identifying the betrayer, and then dismissing him. If Judas leaves at the end of verse 30, then he can't be there for the institution of the Lord's Supper after verse 30. So at some point in this evening, prior to verse 21, that's when Jesus instituted communion. But we don't know that for absolute certain. That's just, we gotta put it someplace, and that seems to be a very natural break. Um, if Jesus, if Jesus did say that, according to Luke's Gospel, if Jesus said to the disciples, this is my body, and this is my blood, and the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table, and woe to that man by whom he is betrayed, then Jesus contemplating that and revealing that to the disciples might explain why suddenly he becomes troubled in spirit. And the word troubled there speaks of an inner spiritual or mental anguish or turmoil that somebody was going through. 
The word troubled there is used to refer to or describe the disciples' terror when Jesus walked on water, thinking they were seeing a ghost. They were troubled. Words used in Luke chapter 1, verse 12 of Zacharias' fear when Gabriel appeared to him in the temple. It's used in Luke 24, verse 38, where the disciples fear and they are in great turmoil after Jesus appeared to them after his resurrection. And then it's used two other times in John, once at the tomb of Lazarus, where it says that Jesus was in deep anguish at the tomb of Lazarus. And then it is used in chapter 12, verse 27, where Jesus expresses his distress or being troubled in spirit at the prospect of what he was going to suffer. So here he is at the upper room and he becomes, not anxious, anxious is the wrong word because it communicates a sense of worry. Anxious is not the word, but a sense of inner turmoil, a stirring in his heart, a troubling in his heart, and a mental anguish. And it's a word that's used to describe an intense mental or spiritual anguish. Now I ask you this question, does it bother you that the captain of your salvation experienced mental anguish, spiritual trouble, that he was troubled in his spirit? Does that bother you? One thing that we can learn from this is that being in mental or spiritual turmoil, being troubled, is not in itself a sin. You know what is a sin? It's what we do with it. Since he's the sinless, spotless son of God, and he experienced this mental and spiritual turmoil on more than one occasion, it is therefore not sinful to be spiritually or mentally disturbed or distressed by something. What is sinful is what we do with it. I am stirring in inner turmoil, and so then I become bitter. That's sin. Or I begin to trust in myself. That is sin. Or I start to try and correct it myself. That is sin. Or I start to worry. That is sin. It's not the inner turmoil that itself is sin. It is what the inner turmoil becomes and how it manifests itself in our lives. But does it bother you that the captain of your salvation experienced inner turmoil? I mean, after all, if Jesus is fully God, what does he have to worry about? He is fully God, isn't he? But he's also fully man. And this is one of the experiences of his humanity. John is the one who gives us the fullest and most straightforward declaration of the deity of Christ. But listen, John is also the one who uses this word three times to describe Jesus. John gives us the fullest and and the clearest declaration of the deity of Christ, but he also gives us a very full understanding of what his humanity was and what his humanity experienced. And in his humanity, he was distressed. He was in inner and spiritual turmoil. That wasn't sin, but just because he was fully God does not mean that he did not experience what we experience in his humanity without experiencing any of the sin part of it. But wasn't Jesus, didn't Jesus fully know everything that was going to happen? If you fully knew the future, would you be distressed? Of course you would. Now, I mean, initially you say, no, if I knew everything that was going to happen, I wouldn't be worried. No, if you knew everything that was going to happen, you would be worried. That's why God hides that stuff from you, is to keep us from getting distressed and in turmoil over it. The fact that Jesus knew acutely everything that was about to happen is why he was distressed. It was his full knowledge of everything that was happening that caused the inner sense of turmoil and anguish over what he was what he was uh, seeing was about to unfold. But he was perfectly God and he was perfectly knowledgeable, but wasn't he also perfectly in control? Now, if you could control every single event, would you be upset by it? If you had perfect control over it? Though he was perfectly in control, his perfect knowledge, his perfect deity, and his perfect sovereign control over all of those events all of those events did not for one minute diminish the anguish of those events or what was unfolding around him. He was acutely distressed over it. What was causing him distress? Let me suggest a few things. 
It might be the fact that he knew fully Judas's heart and he knew that after all of the grace and all of the love and all of the goodness that he had shown Judas, that his still his heart was hardened. And doesn't did not the hardness of men's heart cause him anguish? It did. When he saw the hardness of men's hearts, he was he was grieved over that. Uh, maybe that was part of what was going on at the tomb of Lazarus. It might be that the presence of Satan at this supper caused him distress. Jesus knew more than any of the disciples did or could have known who else was in that room at the time. And when Jesus handed Judas the sop and Jesus, Judas ate that from the hand of the Master, Satan entered into him. Jesus, fully aware of what was going on in the spiritual realm, knew who else was in that room, waiting for his opportunity to possess Judas. Maybe it was the full knowledge of all of Judas's punishment and the eternal wrath that he would suffer as a result of what he was doing that caused Jesus anguish. Or maybe it was just the full knowledge of everything that he was about to face, that within 24 hours he would, he would die on behalf of his people and bear the wrath of Almighty God against his people in an infinite and eternal measure. Maybe that was what caused him distress. Any one of those things would be enough to cause a normal man distress. And Jesus faced all of them. All of those events, all of that knowledge, everything that he knew was about to unfold, he was distressed and troubled in his spirit. So he says in verse 21, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. Now Jesus realizes or reveals this prediction. One of you is going to betray me. Now, before we move on to the betrayer identified, I want to ask you to do something for just a second. Put yourself in Judas's shoes. Put yourself in Judas's shoes that evening. Now, you, you have already previously that week approached the religious leaders who you know want to kill Jesus. You have cut a deal. You have agreed to a price. You are looking for the opportunity. Then you show up at this meal. Jesus starts speaking about one who is not clean, one who is not his, one who would lift up his heel and, be, and, and attack him. And then Jesus says, one of you will betray me. Now, if you are in Judas's shoes, what are you thinking? Are you thinking to yourself, how does he know this? Does he know who it is? Or does he just know that it is? Who's his informant among the Pharisees? Who has ratted out the betrayer? Is Jesus guessing about this betrayal? Because if he is, I got a, I got only a 1 in 12 chance of being caught and I got 11 in 12 chance of going free. Or does Judas think to himself, the gig is up. I was a fool for thinking I could pass anything over on this man. This is the man who knew the the moral history of the woman at the well without having ever met her before. And he said to her, you had five husbands and the one you have now is not your own. He knew everything about that woman. He knew her thoughts. He knows the thoughts of men. I was a fool for thinking I could get away with this. Or did Jesus know, or did Judas know that Jesus knew all along and just say to himself, I don't care if he knows, I am going to plunge headlong into this treachery. What was he thinking? We can't know that, can we? But I can know that our sinful hearts will rationalize our sin in all three of those ways. Doesn't it? We deceive ourselves into thinking that what we do under the cover of darkness is known only to us and that God is kept in the dark as to our, our deeds. And then later on, then we suddenly come to the realization, what was I thinking? To think that He didn't know my thoughts and He didn't know my mind and my heart and everything about me while I was doing it. And then sometimes the sinful heart just says, you know what, I know that God knows and I know what God says and I'm going to plunge headlong into this sin and I'm going to do so willingly. The sinful heart rationalizes and commits sin in all three of those fashions. I don't know what was going on in Judas's heart, but at some point in that evening he realized he knows, he not only knows what I have done, he knows what I'm about to do, and he knows that it's me that is going to do it. He knows all of that. So that is the betrayer predicted. The betrayal predicted. Now look at the betrayer identified. 
betrayer is identified, beginning in verse 22. Now I'm going to read verses 22 through 26. Verse 22, the disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now the King James Version says, They looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake. And that's an unfortunate translation because it says that the disciples were doubting of which one Jesus spoke. The word doubting, this word doesn't mean anything like doubting. It's not that they doubted who it was or they doubted that Jesus knew or they doubted it was going to happen. Doubting is not even present. They're perplexed. They are mystified. They they are completely oblivious to the fact that any one of them has been uh, planning a betrayal or that any one of them would betray Jesus. In fact, one of the most mystifying aspects of this whole evening is how John repeats continually, they did not know. They remained clueless. Even after Jesus identified Judas, the disciples still remained clueless as to why Judas was being dismissed. Look at it throughout the text, beginning in verse... Oh, I thought I was going to underline these. I didn't. Beginning in verse uh, 22, the disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know which one he was speaking. And so Simon Peter, verse 24, gestured to him, Tell us, of whom is he speaking? Verse 25, leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? They don't know. And then in verse 27, or verse 28, after Jesus says to him, do what you do quickly, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to them. So continually throughout this evening, John is remarking, they didn't know, they didn't know. Even after this happened, they didn't know. They were continually perplexed by this idea that one of them would betray the Lord Jesus Christ. And the rest of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all make mention of this, this, that the disciples were stupefied by this revelation that any one of them would betray Jesus. Mark chapter 14, verse 19, they began to be grieved and said to him, one by one, surely, not I, one by one, Lord, is it me? Lord, is it me? Even Judas was caught up in the, in the, trying to keep it a secret up to the last minute. Matthew 26, verse 25, and Judas, who was betraying him, said, surely it's not I, Rabbi? What is Judas fishing for? Does he know who it is? He knows what's happening. Does he know who it is? And Judas is even up to the last minute trying to keep his treachery under darkness. To keep the rest of the disciples from knowing what's going on. Luke chapter 22 verse 23. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. So Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. It's not I, is it? And Judas, Lord, it's not I. Am I I'm not the one, am I? And then Judas, Judas, Jesus said to Judas, yeah, you are the one. It is as you have said. And then Luke says they began to discuss among themselves, maybe in little groups, which one of them was going to do this thing. Now, how did that conversation go with Judas? What does, what does Judas say? As they're discussing which one of its... He doesn't raise his hand and say, look, I'm the one. He, he doesn't come clean with any of it. Even up to the very moment that he leaves, he's keeping it under wraps. So what is... Judas, who do you think is going to be the one to betray him? You know, I don't know. I don't know. Could be Peter, maybe. Peter? Peter betray him? Why Peter? You know how inconsistent that guy is? I mean, he's up one minute and down the next minute. And he this is the man who walks on water one minute and cries for help the next. And you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he turns around and starts arguing with Jesus the very next minute. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. I mean, Jesus never called me Satan. Has he ever called you Satan? Never called me Satan. Well, called you, he called Peter Satan. I mean, if I were going to guess, when Jesus said one of you is a devil, and then about 18 months later he calls, calls Peter Satan, 
That may be the clue. It might be Peter. Uh, you know, it might be Peter, yeah. Or it could be Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot? Yeah, that radical revolutionary. You know his past. He's likely, if Jesus doesn't implement this whole kingdom thing, he's just as likely as any one of us to turn on Jesus and try and take things into his own hand and establish a kingdom on his own. I bet Simon the Zealot could be the betrayer. Yeah, I guess it could be Simon. I never would have expected him, but maybe the people you should ex- expect and suspect are the ones that you would never suspect, right? And then Judas, maybe Judas said, you know what, it could be Matthew. Matthew? He's a tax collector. I mean, that guy would sell his own mother for a shilling. He would drown his own children for a dollar. You can't trust Matthew. This guy sold out his entire nation to take our money. It's a good thing we didn't put Matthew in charge of the treasury because he would have been bilking off the top of the treasury the whole time. You cannot trust tax collectors. That could have been Matthew, I guess. Having that conversation amongst them. Finally, one of them is curious enough in verse 22 to ask Jesus. So, verse 22 The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, Tell us of whom it is he is speaking. Now everything in these verses is going to sound odd to you, I think, because you may have a certain picture in your mind. For instance, what would sound odd? Verse 23, what is John doing leaning and reclining on Jesus' bosom? What is that about? And why then does John lean back upon Jesus' bosom to ask him this question? How many of you have seen Leonardo da Vinci, not DiCaprio, Leonardo Leonardo da Vinci's uh, work, The Last Supper? You see Jesus in the middle and six disciples on each side, right? It is a masterpiece of art. It is a train wreck of biblical history because it's not at all accurate as to what it portrays. Artistically, a masterpiece. Biblically, a train wreck. Remember that. Now, if you have that vision in your mind, get it out. If you didn't have that vision in your mind before I mentioned it, get it out. Because it's not at all accurate, and I'm sorry for getting it into your mind. But let me describe to you what the picture actually would have looked like. By the way, in that picture, you you can tell which one is John. And you know why you can tell which one is John? He's the disciple of love. And if you look at that picture, and I studied it this last week, I was trying to figure out without researching it which one was Judas, and I finally ran out of I finally ran out of patience and just read the little Wikipedia article as to which one was Judas. But John is easy to tell because John is always painted as an effeminate, female-looking, womanish figure. He is the one that looks like a girl dressed up as a man, and it is pathetic. And I think that John, if he were here, he would be infuriated by that. He's the son of thunder. You don't call an effeminate man the son of thunder. But John was the son of thunder, so he was a masculine fisherman, not an effeminate Milk sop. So anyway, get that idea out of your head. Let me describe to you what the scene would have looked like. And so then after I describe to you what the scene would have looked like, you can appreciate some of the details, not only of this gospel, but of also the other gospels and what the writers communicate there. So this is what you need to picture in mind. Not a long table with Jesus in the middle and six down each side, all discussing amongst themselves. Don't picture that. There would have been one single table in the middle of the room And the disciples would have been reclining at the table on three sides, all the way around that table. One end of the table would be left open without anybody reclining or sitting there because the the servants would bring the food out and set it out and they would take it off that end of the table. And and, and the table is low to the ground, very low to the ground. You can't sit with your legs underneath of it. It's, It's down right next to the floor. And the men at that time and the people who would recline around a table would, they wouldn't sit 
and they wouldn't be seated up like we would be. They would be leaning on their left arm on a pillow next to the table with their feet extended out away from the table like that. I'm not going to lay down and show you what this looks like. You're going to have to use your imagination. So they're, they're leaning on a pillow on one arm that leaves their right arm free to eat food and secure food and to talk and to point and gesture and all that. And you can see that I'm still able to talk to the person next to me, right? By just turning my head around a little bit while still leaning on my left side. Now, John was reclining and reclined back upon the chest of Jesus. Where would John have been then? Right next to him. We suspect that Judas had the position right behind Jesus. And I'm going to tell you why we suspect that in just a moment. This position to Jesus' left would have been the chief seat of honor. Other than the head of the table, which Jesus had, right behind him would have been, to his left, would have been the seat of honor. The honored guest, as it were. And right beside him was John. Now, that's, that's the image. They're reclining feet out away from the table, everybody leaning on their left hand, eating with their right as they're enjoying this. Laying down, like I've said before, meals at that time were very relaxing. Very relaxing, very casual, very laid back, very slow going. That's the way it was this evening. Can you imagine eating that way, by the way? I can't. i got to have both hands free to secure and uh, eat and gobble down as much food as quickly as I... It's all about efficiency. Back in that time, they didn't care about efficiency of motion. They didn't care how many hands you had free to do it. It's just a relaxing time. So that's the scene. Now, I have to say something only because this is our culture. In our culture, such an image of men lying down next to each other and one leaning back upon another... I need to be careful with this because I helped build this so I know how weak this thing is. Men leaning back upon one upon another, it, the, the whole idea of that would make us a little bit uncomfortable in our culture, right? That is only because we have been over-sexualized by a perverse way of thinking that only sees any kind of male contact as sexual and beyond the bounds. And we have been over-sexualized in the name of progress, by the way. So the reason we think that that is uncomfortable is because we have devolved to the point where one man showing affection to another man is automatically assumed to be some sort of having some sort of homosexual connotations. There is nothing inappropriate about this at all. If I'm sitting next to Thomas at a meal and we're enjoying a meal and I lean over to him and put my shoulder next to his and I whisper something in his ear so only he can see it or hear it, only he can hear it, do you think there's anything inappropriate about that? No, you don't think, oh, Thomas and Jim must be gay. You don't think that at all. <laughs> Sorry, there was a... I'm not going to go there. You don't think that at all. You just understand that I'm trying to draw close so that I can whisper something in Thomas's ear that only he can hear. That is precisely what is going on at this meal. Okay? So you got the picture in your mind of how this would have how this would have looked that night. Now, here's how it unfolded. Jesus said to them, "One of you will betray me." Now, John makes the note that he, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining on Jesus' bosom. It doesn't mean he was laying on Jesus all the time. It means that John was reclining to the place where Jesus' bosom faced. John was on this side of him. And the disciple whom Jesus loved is John. I'm not going to go into all the reasons why we believe that now. The beginning of the Gospel of John, we covered that in detail as to why everybody believes that the disciple whom Jesus loved was John. So he is seated in front of Jesus. Judas, we believe, is behind. We're going to get into why that is in just a second. So Peter, now where's Peter at in the whole seating arrangement? Now there's no seating arrangement given, but where was Peter? Peter had to motion to John, get his attention, and motion to him and told John, ask Jesus who it is. Peter obviously was not right in front of John, was he? Otherwise, Peter could have just leaned over to John and said, ask Jesus who it is, and then John would have leaned back to Jesus and said, who is it? 
So Peter was somewhere else around the table and he got John's attention. Something like that. They can't hear that on the recording, but that's kind of the idea. Peter is motioning to him. Get the information. Who is it? Who is he speaking of? And so what did John do in order to not raise suspicion with any of the other disciples? He did what would be quite natural, which is to lean back so that only Jesus could hear him and say, Lord, who is it? Nobody else in the room would have been able to hear him say that. So Jesus gave him the sign. It is the one who I will take the bread and I will dip it in the mixture and give it to him to eat. Now that was the sign. He's going to take bread, he's going to dip it, and they had a mixture that was made up of vinegar and water and salt and crushed uh, figs and raisins and dates, I think it was, and bitter herbs. It was a bitter mixture. If that doesn't sound good to you at all, I can see some of you cringing even now at the thought of that. But have you ever taken uh, bread and dipped it in balsamic vinegar with olive oil or avocado oil or something like that? You know how good that is? That is just delicious. Right? I can eat that all day long. Almost any kind of bread dipped in that bitter, bittersweet mixture is delicious. Very similar in that time. It was a bittersweet mixture, and Jesus would dip that and give it to Judas. This would raise no suspicion among anybody who was there. And you know why? Because Judas had likely the position of honor. And for the head of the table to honor the guest of honor by giving him a piece of bread would be quite natural. Now, why do we think that Judas was right next to Jesus? Because Judas was close enough for Jesus to be able to dip the bread and hand it to Judas. He wouldn't have been able to do that if Judas was on the other side of John, anywhere way behind him or across the table. Jesus dipped the bread and he handed it to Judas. Now, if John was here, Judas had to be there. There's a second reason that we believe that Judas was close to Jesus, and that is because it would be quite natural, as I said, for the guest, for the head of the table to do that to a guest of honor. The guest of honor would be right next to him. It would be unnatural, and it would raise suspicion for Jesus to do that to anybody else at the table. It would have raised the suspicion of the disciples. Jesus was not trying to raise anybody's suspicion. A third reason that we would think that Judas had the position right next to Jesus is because in Matthew chapter 26, verse 25, Judas asked the Lord, Is it I? And Jesus said to him, you've said it yourself. Yep. Now, he that conversation between Judas and Jesus went on without any of the other disciples hearing about it. So here's how it would have unfolded. One of you will betray me. And they're perplexed. So they begin to discuss this amongst themselves, who it is. And each one is asking the other one, who do you think it's going to be? And so out of, in turn, the disciples start asking Jesus, is it I? Is it I? No, no, or Jesus just doesn't answer. But when Judas, who is right next to him, whispers in his ear, Lord, is it I? Jesus is able to say to him, yes. And probably about that time, John leaned back and said, Lord, tell us who it is. It's the one for whom I will take the bread and dip it in the mixture and give it to him. And he did that, and he handed it to Judas. Jesus was able to to identify the traitor to Judas without any of the other disciples hearing about it. And Jesus identified the traitor to Peter and John without any of the other disciples being able to hear about or understand it. Now, can you see that picture in your mind? That is the betrayer identified. Now, here is my question, and with this we'll have to close. Here's my question. Why didn't Jesus stop this act? Did he want to? He didn't want to. He came to die for his sheep. He said it in John 10. Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. He came to die. That was the reason He came. That was the purpose He came. This was not an accident. He is not a victim. He is a volunteer. And so Judas, though entirely under His sovereign control, is doing exactly what Jesus 
is allowing him to do so that the plan would happen exactly as Jesus wanted it to happen. That Judas would indeed be the one to betray Jesus to death. But here's another question. Why didn't, if Peter and John knew that Judas was the one who would betray him, why didn't Peter or John stop him? Did you wonder that? Why when Jesus says, what you do, do quickly, and Judas gets up and leaves the room, why didn't Peter and John say, hold on a second, we're coming with you. We haven't need to have a little Galilean brother-to-brother talk outside the room. If they knew that Judas was the betrayer, why didn't Peter and John jump on Judas and subdue him and keep him from running out the door and committing this act of treachery? Let me offer to you a few different reasons that I would suggest. First, it might be that Peter and John thought that the betrayal that Jesus would be describing would be an accidental betrayal. Not something intentional, but something that Judas would just kind of slip up, end up betraying Jesus to the the Pharisees. Maybe they thought this was just going to be an accident and they couldn't prevent an accident, something that they really couldn't foresee coming or even understand how it would come to pass. Or it might be that Peter and John thought to themselves, you know what, this man who can raise the dead and heal the sick and make the lame to walk, he can handle a betrayer. So we're just going to let Jesus control it. We don't need to worry about doing anything with Judas because Jesus has it all under control. Now, I don't think that that's what they were thinking because they tend to try and take a lot of things into their own hands and didn't seem to think that, they didn't seem to trust in the fact that Jesus controlled anything. Here's why I think Peter and John didn't stop them. I think that Peter and John did not realize that this act of betrayal was underway even as they spoke. See, there's nothing in the text that indicates that Jesus told them that it was going to happen this evening. They may have been thinking, this is a long ways off. So even after Jesus dismisses Judas, the text says in verse 28 that they did not know for what purpose he had said this to them. Even after he identified them and he dismissed Judas, the disciples didn't know why he was being dismissed. Because Peter and John, though they knew Judas would eventually be the one to betray him, they may have thought that's long down down the road. I mean, we didn't suspect Judas coming into this. You know what else I notice here about the grace of Christ? And this kind of brings us back to where we started and, and has to do with the, the, the fact that Judas was not foreseen by any of the disciples. That speaks volumes, I think, about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ even toward Judas, doesn't it? I think of it this way. Jesus for three years knew who was going to betray him and how he was going to betray him and when he would betray him and that Judas would sell him for 30 pieces of silver. He knew this for three years and yet for three years Jesus did not treat Judas any differently than he did the rest of the disciples because when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, not one person sitting at that table said, It's got to be Judas. I have seen the way Jesus looks at him. I have seen the way Jesus treats him. He treats him differently. He treats him as an outsider. Judas has got to be the one. If he knows who's going to betray him, it's got to be Judas. None of them suspected Judas because outwardly Judas and John did not appear any different. And Jesus didn't treat Judas any differently than he did John. That is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you knew somebody was going to betray you to death for 30 cents, for 30 bucks, would you treat them differently for three years? if you knew with absolute certainty that they were going to betray you? Something tells me you would. I would. I wouldn't be able to help but treat them differently. But so equal was Jesus' treatment of those who were his and Judas that they could not tell from how Jesus treated Judas that he would be the one to betray him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are so grateful to you for the blessing of grace in Christ. Thank you for what your word teaches us and instructs us. We're just grateful, God, that you show us who Christ is and his grace. We thank you that we are not in the camp. Those of us who have trusted Christ are not in the camp of those who would betray betray you. We are those whom you have called and loved for your own eternal glory and your own eternal purposes. And so we are thankful that all of what we have seen unfold here is right under the sovereign control of the Lord and Savior. We know that our Savior did not do this by accident, that 
He was not a victim, that he was a volunteer, and we thank you for that, that he who died for us rose again as well. We're thankful for that grace and for that salvation and for what you show us of your son. Help us to remember these things and to apply these truths to our heart, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.